Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuha. Tamson and Dan read the paper. Right. On May 16th. <laughs> Sunday. 2021, yeah. Day after the Preakness. Day, well, we'll get to the Preakness in a minute. I know you're dying to talk about horse racing. And especially horse racing when it involves your home state of Maryland, the famous Preakness. But just if we can hold off for just a minute. Just a minute. Notice things are getting back to normal, huh? Post-COVID? Not really. Are Not we in really. the post-COVID era? No. What do you mean? You're getting all kinds. CDC said uh, all masks are off. I know what the CDC said. Yeah. But apparently no one else does. Well. (laughs) You know, first of all, we kind of uh, toggle between uh, New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Right. In terms of shopping and whatnot. Right. Right. Um, But, and Pennsylvania is going along with the CDC saying, you know. Uh, masks are no longer necessary for vaccinated people indoors or outdoors. Right. And yet, uh, I went to the grocery store yesterday. Everyone's still in a mask. That's true. Everyone. Everyone's in a mask. And, of course, Jersey has said uh, they're not uh, buying yeah. it yet. They're very safe. Murphy says we're not ready, Governor he, Murphy. Murphy knows. He's the governor. He says we're not quite there yet. He's uh, and, politically uh, uh, educated on this So subject. I will say that we see fewer masks outside. Fewer but you still see. But you still see the occasional person alone on a bicycle in the middle of the uh, canal path. You see people. No one around. See people with a mask on. You see people driving cars wearing masks. Alone. Yeah. Alone. Yeah. So, but uh, we are always assuming that they have their reasons. Right. Let's hope so. And, ma- and maybe they are valid. Well, I think you know it's just tough. Inertia is a big thing. You know, it's it's tough. To get people wearing masks, it's tough to, to get people to take their masks off. That's human nature, I think. But well, I think, we are feeling somewhat confident. Well, Broadway is uh, feeling confident. They've now announced the return of Broadway, and they did it with something of a splash. Three shows got together, uh, Hamilton, The Lion King, and Wicked, and announced that they were opening on September 14th. And since then, several other shows have announced they'll be opening in September Six American Utopia, Come From Away, Moulin Rouge, Aladdin, maybe Phantom. So, um, and Hamilton's been running ads like crazy. Oh, is that right? I haven't seen him. Yeah. Uh, it, well, yes, you have. Have I? On like the bottom of the front page of the New York Times. Oh, you mean print? Yeah, in print. Yeah, I haven't seen him on television. Uh, yeah, you're right. Um, so that's uh, that gives a sense that it's coming back because it's not like people you can you can snap your fingers and put on a Broadway show. So if you're putting it on at September 16th, you're in rehearsals for six weeks before. Um, so they're moving. Uh, they do make the point, at least the Times made the point, that they don't expect nonprofit theaters and more niche theaters to get going until October or maybe even later than that. I don't understand the logic in that, but that's not to say there isn't logic in that. Um, I don't know. Don't quite get it. But uh, there are a whole uh, bunch of shows that are going to go on in September. And a lot of others have given dates. Those dates happen to be uh, October. And Music Man, not till December, by the way. Uh, maybe, you know, people have schedules. Uh, so uh, it makes it feel like uh, something's coming, right? Something's happening. Something's coming. Something's coming. Right away. Uh, well, I, you, so right away. you had that. No, something's coming. Uh, Doral knock, Doral jingle. What is it? Bell Jingle Doral Knock. There we go. West Side Story. So um, there we also noticed, because we were in a Broadway mode, that there was an article about uh, Miscast. Miscast is the... Um, Annual fundraiser. By MCC. Uh, Theater. Yes, Manhattan Theater Company. Um, 
and uh, in which what they do is, and we've talked about this before, I think, uh, Broadway performers come on and uh, perform songs that they would never be cast to do in shows. And so often men singing women's roles, you know, that sort of thing. But it's very entertaining. It's, uh, it's amusing, but it it's, can be great. They really invest themselves in it. Uh, We've never seen the show. We've seen clips on clips YouTube. Of it. Yeah, YouTube does make the clips available, and there are some great performances of clips. But like, I suppose for a contribution, you could see the whole thing online. And we might do that. So that's streaming beginning on Sunday, which is today, I believe. Sunday through Thursday, you can make a contribution MCC and watch it. I don't know if you call that live or what you call it, but in any event, watch the streaming performances. And that might be worth doing. It always looks interesting when we see it on YouTube. Yeah. And they get big names. And they say the names they have here, you know, I won't name them all, but it's, you know, Elise Goldsberry, Cheyenne Jackson, Idina Menzel, Kelly O'Hara, Billy Porter. So, you know, they're serious people. I don't think it's going to be that good. Why not? Because part of the fun in the clips I've been seeing is yeah. when the live audience goes crazy. Oh, well, that's true. Because right? often the live audience are people, yeah. you right. know, within the biz and right. so forth. And, uh, you know, they just, uh, they get the joke, yeah. uh, so to speak. Right. Um, so um, inside baseball, I, I think it won't be quite as engaging mm. um, because you won't be uh, engaged by the audience reaction, which is what we've been going through. Uh, yeah, for a no, year you're now. right because what happens too, the way they do miscast is you know two people are singing and then it becomes a broader number and then some, suddenly Kelly O'Hara walks on stage from nowhere to sing some lesser part, you know, and everybody, and, and everybody goes nuts. It. Everybody goes nuts, you yeah. know. So, you know, she's playing, you know, the smallest remette, you know. Uh, so because that's part of the fun, that yeah. fun won't be there. Right. Yeah, it's the work. I, I think we might do it. So anyway. I'll spring for it, Tamsin. Um, in the Wall Street Journal, there was an article about businesses racing right. to catch up. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, how, how is everybody going to recover? And what kind of hurdles are they all facing? Yeah. And uh, I, I just um, got a few interesting tidbits mm-hmm. from this article. One is, you know, um, the chicken industry is really struggling to um, oh. have enough workers. Oh, really? Yeah, to meet the demand for wings and breast meat. Okay. Um, so it's been hard to uh, fill those jobs. You know, there was uh, there were certain outbreaks right. in, in the uh, meatpacking industry processing yeah. uh, plants. And uh, they they generally say that temperature scanners, mandatory masks, all these things have been instituted to, that have you know solved that problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, nonetheless, uh, they say that uh, absenteeism and turnover are higher than before the pandemic. Okay. So this is affecting restaurants. Mm-hmm. And restaurants. Uh, are not only having trouble hiring workers, but uh, the supply chain mm-hmm. is rough. You know, they're having trouble getting some of these chicken, etc. What is the chicken industry doing? I don't know. They are investing in um, automation. Well, I knew that was the answer, but what, what are well, they you, doing? Well, you didn't say. You well, said, I don't know. It's too broad an answer. What are they doing? What, what, what are they automating? The, the thing is, whether, these people, whether people want these jobs or not, they're not going to exist. Soon, because uh, um, which company is this? Uh, uh, Pilg- uh, Purdue Pilgrim Pilgrim's okay. Pride, yeah. a rival of Tyson. You know Tyson. Um, they have company. The company has plans to invest another hundred million. Yeah. Uh, 
uh, in, in uh, automated chicken automated, processing. Yeah. Okay. So there's that. Another interesting thing um, is in the apparel business, mm-hmm. and that is with the online shopping. Okay. And many stores actually uh, on site, even if you're wearing a mask, et cetera, we're not allowing people to try on clothing. Oh, I know that. Okay. Know that. Um, so, so we're all resorting to uh, blind purchase. B- um, purchase purchasing online, yeah. Which means you're going to return stuff, yeah. Because how you know how often are you lucky enough to see something on the computer and you you know get it in your hot little hands and it's perfect, right? You know, not very often. And uh, so they have a chart saying a percentage of U.S. consumers who returned a product in clothing over the twi- last twelve months. Forty-six percent. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure exactly what that means. People return stuff. People are returning stuff. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and they expensive. say that it's much higher. It's about um, triple the rate for uh, products purchased uh, in person. Clothing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, clothing and other things as well. Mm-hmm. In general, mm-hmm. um, more things are returned. So um, that's uh, that's a huge cost. Mm-hmm. For the um, apparel industry, partly because we're all demanding free returns now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I get pissed off if uh, it doesn't have free returns, but, and I'm reluctant to try it, to buy something that I can't easily return. But how does this relate to the idea of uh, coming back? The notion that uh, now we're going to have more retail uh in place, so people will be able to buy in person, and you won't see as many returns. Is that the thought? Well, I mean, I think it means that there's going to be a sort of a, a flux, a changing um, in uh, you know how people shop. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Good. Good. I don't know if I have anything else. You know. Okay. Well, some stuff about semiconductors, but really, <laughs> really? I'm not interested in not, semiconductors. Well, it's not important to the economy. It's not an economic thing. It's not like chicken. You know, uh, all right. So uh, I know you wanted to get to the Preakness. So let's get to the Preakness, uh, which is run Pimlico Racetrack, which is uh, in Pimlico. Is Pimlico a place in Maryland or is, is there another uh, town that Pimlico is in? I guess it's... I've never been there, Daniel. Oh, you're, you're from Maryland. I know you have this, this You're a Southern girl from Maryland. As I mean. uh, the um, horse race enthusiast. <laughs> but didn't that was... Isn't it the I've pl- never been there. I don't even know anybody who's been to the Do Preakness. you know what the, the flower of the Preakness is? Sure. Yeah. It's the Black Eyed Susan, isn't it? Yes. Okay. Well, the run for the Black Eyed Susan. The run for the Black Eyed Susan. All right. So here's. Uh, I know the Maryland State Flower. I've been to Maryland. All right. I just don't hang out at the track. All right. So look, here's what we don't. Enough. So the horse racing is sort of a black eye, but it, it, maybe it should have it. But it's, this is not for the right reason. You know that they ran the Derby, and this horse called Medina Spirit won, and uh, after the race. Um, Two days or after the race, they had they showed the test results that the uh, that Medina Spirit had something called beta methasone in her system uh, at a level that was not allowed, and they talked about possibly disqualifying the horse. But it turns out, number one, you can't disqualify a horse until you get a second test, and it turns out too uh, against really the uh, the way all other <laughs> medical tests are done. They can't get the result for the second test for about a week or 10 days, which no one can figure out. No one can figure out. I love the whole story. <laughs> Why do you love it? That it was some liniment for, right. you know, aching muscles well, or it something. Might have been. It might have been. Rubbed on, yeah. 
And I'm sure right on the label it says this works because it has steroids. Well, it's actually what it does say right on the label Mm -hmm. is uh, this liniment contains uh, a beta methasone. So there's no excuse that they didn't know it's right on the label. You know what? Uh, He's only been a trainer. Bob Baffert's only been a trainer for 45 years. So those guys aren't the most educated guys. Well, they're not. But but here's the other side of it. Okay, fine. Uh, So it's a transgression. That said. as people love to point out, that there's not a national commissioner of horse racing. You have these different state authorities. And in many states, if the horse has beta-methasone in his system, her system, no big deal. Nobody gets disqualified. It's just not a, not, it's a non-event. It's considered mm-hmm. inconsequential. Mm-hmm. Uh, it turns out uh, that in Kentucky, it's consequential. So there's a potential for uh, disqualification. But there's really not any real good reason to think that that's why Medina Spirit won the Kentucky Derby. I'm not saying it's a violation, not a violation. Maybe it is, or maybe it isn't. Kentucky has its rules. But the fact of the matter is, when I watched the replay of that race yesterday, Medina Spirit won because it had good racing luck. And what I mean by good racing luck is that the Derby has 20 horses, so it's a real traffic jam. Medina Spirit's a good to very good horse, not a great horse. But it had a perfect lucky trip which means it got to the lead and it wasn't challenged by the other real good horses. So the result is it led the race during much of the way with what are called slow fractions. It wasn't running that hard. In most races, if you have a reasonably quality horse in the lead and that horse is not challenged, that horse will win. The late challenge, the horse can respond because it has been running a relaxed way the whole way. That's what happened with Medina Spirit. There was no, and I know Medina Spirit didn't win yesterday, came in third, because that race transpired differently. There was a challenge. There was a challenge. So what you had is uh, Midnight Spirit and Midnight Bourbon going at it. And uh, Midnight Spirit wasn't going to win that race. Midnight Spirit? No, uh, Medina Spirit wasn't going to win that race. Midnight right. Bourbon and Medina Spirit. As a matter of fact, uh, Midnight Bourbon was going to win that race uh, until a horse called Rumbauer comes like a, if I can use the phrase, bat out of hell from the middle of the pack and is running like every other horse is standing still. You yeah. watched it with yes. me. And it didn't make any it sense. It didn't seem possible. It doesn't seem possible to me even now because the horse uh, was a long shot, 13 to 1. Uh, it's not considered a great horse. And it's coming from nowhere and went by those other horses so fast and pulled away that you just can't understand it. Uh so, you know, if you want to look for a drug problem, I'd look at that horse. Although I don't, I don't, I don't really have any information on that. I don't want to give the wrong idea. What I liked was that uh, they interviewed uh, Flavian Pratt, who is the uh, uh, jockey uh, of uh, Rumbauer, uh, who um, is French. And he happened to be the, uh, the jockey on a horse called uh, Country House, who was named Derby winner after a disqualification in 2019, which is an odd situation. Maximum Security, remember, bumped another horse. But So his name had come up then. But the fact of the matter is, now he's crossing the finish line first. There's old people are going crazy. And they interview him afterwards, and they say, boy, you came here from France. I know you were a successful jockey, but uh, I bet you never dreamed that you would be winning one of the triple crown races, the Breakness. And he said something like, I wasn't really uh, too aware of the, the Triple Crown, honestly. Not that big a deal to me. Uh, well, because he's French. He's French. I like okay. that, though. He said, I heard of the Breeders' he, he Cup. Know, he knows the French races. Yeah, he knows the French races. So he had, it wasn't even a dream of his because he never heard of it. But in any event, he gave me won the race yesterday. And, 
it was exciting. But uh, we await the drug tests on uh, Rumbauer uh, to see what comes up. Um, and, of course, the Belmont is in uh, three weeks. All right. Get ready. Yes. So the bald eagle there. The front page of the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. Okay. Majestic bald eagle is back. Yeah. And wants to eat your little dog. Right. Okay. So it turns out we actually have been You've seen seeing the bald. bald eagles. I, I ride bikes with you once area. in a while and you go, what? There it is. There it is. There it is. Bald I, eagle. Yeah. I mean, I, if something flies by and it's pretty big and has a white head. Yeah. I'm assuming it's a bald eagle. I got my eyes on the rope. And, there, the and there, are, okay. there are nests around. So Safety uh, first is what I say. Yes. Anyway, yeah. um, it, as it says in the article, it wasn't long ago yeah. that bird watchers considered the odds of a bald eagle sighting just this side of a unicorn sighting. Mm, not okay. a lot of those, no. All right. Yeah. Through conservation efforts and the banning of chemicals like DDT, the population has recovered. Yes, we're okay. overwhelmed with them here. We're uh, lousy with bald eagles. A recent report so. from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Department found that numbers of bald eagles have quadrupled to more than 316,000 mm. in 2019 mm. from around 72,000 in 2009. Um, and they're, and that's only for the lower 48. Mm. And uh, they point out that in Alaska and Canada, there are probably 150,000 more. Yeah, Canada, so there were just so rolling we're clear, in bald eagles. Canada is not a state of the United States. But yes, but go ahead. I'm just saying. Yeah, okay, I got you. The birds don't know that. They hang out there. <laughs> okay. Um, so, I mean, I sort of felt that way. It's not that I'm a bird watcher, mm. but it was like, uh, whoa, bald eagle, great symbol. You gotta we're be, never going to you see You have one. to have a sharp eye because, you know. No, there, you don't have to have there a sharp Oh, who said that? Um, anyway, there are, moving right along. There are falcons, right? There are turkey vultures. So you, you, there, there's, there there's a lot hawks. of birds with it, red tail hawks, right? Not falcon hawks, right? Red tail hawks. So there are a lot of big birds that spread their wings that pick up rodents or something that you can easily think is a bald eagle. No. But what's your point? My point is uh, they've been counting them. And there's it, a lot of them. My there. point is it's okay. hard to tell it's a bald right. eagle. Anyway, this is the point. Yes. No, right. it's not that hard. Okay. okay? Yeah. Just look. Yeah. Okay. Um, the point is yeah. we used to never see them. Now not only do we see them, they're swooping down and doing mean things. I mean, this great symbol of American pride and power and independence and whatever. Um, and so that the very cute picture in uh, the Wall Street Journal of a little dog, because these eagles are strong enough, they say, to you know swoop down and carry off a 12-pound salmon. So a little four-pound dog is nothing to them, right. all right? And people have seen them, like, stalking their dogs. And uh, so anyway, the solution to that is you get a coyote vest, um, which was, you know, designed to protect little dogs from coyotes. And it has all kinds of, it has spikes on it, and it has these, uh, I don't know, wires that uh, jiggle and... Uh, discourage okay and uh, so your dog can wear that uh, you know and it and it discusses that uh it, it's they're everywhere they're kind of fun they describe a person who um uh, has uh, runs trips on a boat in british columbia and uh her clients her patrons you know love to watch you know the bald eagles come and perch on the boat and she says just watch out when they start to move they poo Oh, <laughs> that too. All right. Um, 
So I want to say something about Shohei Otani. We talked about Shohei Otani probably uh, a while ago, a couple of years ago, maybe. He's the, the Japanese player who came to the United States who both uh, pitches and hits. Wasn't he <clears> from <throat> California or something? No, he's from Japan. No, I mean where he was playing. He who, plays, who was he playing You're right. For? He plays for the California Angels. Okay. 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 All right. All right. All right. All right. Gotcha. I know you're all over this. Is this in the Preakness for you? Anyway. I'm not all over this. I'm just pointing out that once or twice I've listened to what you've been saying. So he was supposed to be a fantastic sensation to do what no other player has done since Babe Ruth, which is both pitch very well and hit very well. Well, what happened was he did a little of that, and it was pretty interesting, but he didn't do it in any large measure, and that's because he's been injured. He had Tommy John surgery in 2018. He had knee surgery in 2019. He had a strained forearm last year, but now he's healthy, and it's kind of amazing. And again, I don't know what happens with California baseball. We don't hear enough about it on the East Coast, because if this guy was in New York, this is all people would be talking about, including you. I mean, he had a game recently where he threw a 101-mile-per-hour fastball, and in the same game, hit a home run 450 feet. He is, play- he is pitching great. He's got a... Uh, 2.10 ERA. He has struck out 40 batters uh, in uh, five starts. And he is hitting great. He has 10 home runs. That's almost twice as many as Pete Alonso. He's mm. second in the major leagues in home runs. And which means he's playing every day. They used to have something called the Otani rules. They didn't want to tire him out, lose his focus. So, you know, he wouldn't bat during his own games. They've designated hitter in the American League. And he wouldn't bat the day before. Maybe he wouldn't bat the day after. They got rid of all those rules. Over the offseason, he built up his body more. He changed his diet, they say. He plays every day. And he also hits the days he pitches. So he is a regular Major League player. And he is a regular Major League pitcher. And it is just this side of incredible. And it's actually more impressive than what Ruth did. Because what Ruth did, he established himself as a great pitcher. Uh, and then he became an outfielder and a hitter, and there was very little overlap in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and once he became a hitter, he stopped pitching. This guy is hitting uh, and pitching. I mean, it, it's just bizarre, and he stands alone in Major League Baseball. So uh, there aren't words. It's just amazing. I mean, if you would have told me 20, 30 years ago what a player would ever be able to do this, I would have said, impossible. He's doing it, and on top of everything else, he's leading the Angels in stolen bases. Well, He's got think, six stolen bases. Uh, you think there would be more of a to-do about this. He's the fastest player because on the team. Aren't you baseball people always looking for something to attract right. the yeah. right. fans? Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say he's the fastest runner on the team. I mean, it's incredible. All right. Uh, yeah, they, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm helping Major League Baseball out here. They should be Excellent. making a bigger deal of it. All right. Don't you think? Shohei. Ota- oh, you know what his nickname is? Otani. But his nickname is Showtime. That's so cute. Yes. <laughs> and this is, the announcer says, uh, it's showtime. Yeah, I'm sure he does. I'm sure he does. All right. So, uh, yummy little um, article in the Wall Street Journal, My Teenage Grand Tour, Delectable and Life-Changing. So this is written by Alexander Lebrano, who is a Paris-based food writer. And um, it, it tells it, you know it tells one of those fun stories about going to Europe with mm-hmm. his mother mm-hmm. and his brother uh, in 1972 uh, for, for actually I think uh, 
several months mm-hmm. uh, traveling around. Um, his mother had uh, gotten a, uh, you know, come into an inheritance. And mm-hmm. She thought, you know, this would be fun. And so she planned this trip all over Europe based on the Roman Empire. They go to various countries, and you know, and Rome had been everywhere, mm. so they'd uh, seek out the Roman ruins, uh, etc. And of course, he ends up being charmed more by uh, the um, food, mm-hmm. and uh, she sort of his mom cleverly takes advantage of that. I mean, uh, she chides him on being more interested in the food than the history and the art. She said, "Food is an ephemeral pleasure; great art." isn't um and uh, he was sort of disagreeing but she actually put him in charge of finding the restaurants to go to mm-hmm. and uh, making the reservations so imagine uh having your 14 year old no in charge of that unless mm-hmm. unless he's very precocious yeah so i don't know what he was like then but uh, he said well how do i do that and she said uh you know uh, read reviews and uh, talk to concierge, yeah, that would talk, be to, a help. talk to local people. Uh, again, you know, I mean, that, this is all very easy with the internet now. Mm-hmm. But 1972, that uh, took some real mm-hmm. guts, I think, for a 14-year-old to throw himself out there. Anyway, it, it becomes a, a life-changing experience for him. And, uh, you know, the, he, uh, he says, it turns out I was more enthusiastic about pasta carbonara than Caravaggio. Ooh. And, a man uh, after my own heart. He does describe, at a certain point, his father um, is back home mm-hmm. with their younger sister. And they meet, they all meet, the whole family meets in Paris. They go out to a restaurant. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's nothing on the, or, the menu they can order because uh, a lot of it is uh, kidneys, sweetbread, mm-hmm. and other scary things. So the whole family orders... Um, the uh, that curly endive salad, you know, with the poached egg mm-hmm. and the bacon, right? And so that we all love, and uh, be, uh, beef bourguignon, and uh, and of course they love it. And he is he describes with in you know with rapture the memory of that first salad. Mm-hmm. And so he then uh, by 1986 he moved to France where he has lived ever since so this is part of you know i don't know i might read this book uh, my place at the table food memoirs are always are often kind of fun yeah i know you read those yeah and uh they um pack on many fewer pounds mm-hmm. than eating the food yourself <laughs> so we'll see he also describes eating his first croque monsieur mm. etc and so forth and mm. it was you know and he had figured out as a kid reading some books, some series of books that uh, were about a French uh, brother and sister and uh, the descriptions of the food they ate just enchanted him. All right. Well, he found his destiny. He yeah. found his bliss. Alexander Lebrano. Okay. So there was an interesting article about basketball in the Wall Street Journal. And uh, and what it was an article about the headline says these stores are secretly left-handed and uh what it it says in the headline that sort of catches your attention right away is that uh lebron james who is a right-handed basketball player means he shoots with his right hand dribbles with his right hand more often than not 
writes with his left hand, eats with his left hand, and uses his dominant left hand for almost everything in his life except his job. And you're going, what is that about? Why is he, you know, he's really a, a lefty and he plays right-handed. Are and there it, plenty of lefty play, Oh, yeah. There's nothing wrong with being left-handed. As a matter of fact, it's just an advantage in the NBA uh-huh. to be left-handed okay. because people aren't used to seeing it. And some people say he'd be better if he did everything left-handed. I don't know how much better he could be. <laughs> but the fact is, it turns out this is a thing. They asked Bill Walton about it. Well, it turns out Bill Walton, you remember him, played right-handed but brushes his teeth left-handed does everything mostly left-handed, like LeBron James. Did you know that? No. Okay. So, so it is a secret. It is a secret, and it's it's not called being ambidextrous. They say being ambidextrous, although I can't say they explain this. Well, being ambidextrous means you can do everything with both hands equally well. But what being this is called being mixed-handed. Uh-huh. In other words, you do certain things only with the left hand and certain things only with the right hand, yeah. which is still unusual. Uh, in the general population, it's about 1% of the population is like that. But in the NBA, it's 8%. Hmm. And why? It's an advantage. And being an anti- Why is it an advantage? Because you, inevitably, you have better dexterity and you have better uh, coordination with the offhand because the offhand is not a dead letter. Uh, and it's being that much closer to being ambidextrous. And a lot of players try to play in an ambidextrous way. And there are players who are truly ambidextrous, which is just a step beyond. Um, and they talk in that connection about, um, well, they, they list all these players that are famous players who have this thing going. I mean, it's not just Bill Walton. When he was on the Celtics, Larry Bird was that way. Danny Ainge was that way. Uh, they always, they're really left-handers, but they played right-handed, although they say except for one game where Bird was bored, so he played left-handed. And which is, I can tell you if you play basketball, that's crazy. I couldn't play basketball for 10 seconds left-handed. It's just another one of these things they're saying, these people, they're different. It's not just that they're six, six foot six or six foot nine or seven feet tall. There's something else which distinguishes them. They talk about Tiny Archibald, Nate Archibald, who was a famous player. Um, and you know, he didn't have a dominant hand. In baseball, he was a switch hitter. In track and field, he couldn't figure out if he was left-footed or right-footed. So he jumped off whichever foot happened to hit the board that day when he did the long jump. In punt, pass, and kick football events, he kicked with his left foot and punted with his right foot. Hmm. I mean, Do we have any idea how people started doing this? No, and there's no explanation when they ask these particular people, why'd you do it? They ask LeBron, why'd he... Do it. It doesn't say the theory is he used to watch Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan, Jordan didn't right-handed, so he copied him or something like that. They And then finally, they have a story about Danny Ainge, who's the general manager of Boston now, but he played on that Celtic team, who is pretty, you know, he can do things right-handed and left-handed. And it turns out when he plays racquetball, or when he played racquetball quite a bit when he was a player, he would just, whatever, he would switch the racket from hand to hand. He'd hit it with his right hand or he hit with his left hand. Well, you don't have any backhands that way. It turns out that's a good way to play racquetball. But when he played Red Auerbach, who's the general manager of uh, you know the Celtics, who was older but a great strategist, Auerbach was ticked off that he couldn't beat Danny Ainge. He thought he was a great racquetball player. And he pointed out there's a rule that says you have to have the little circular string of leather on the racket around your wrist. There's actually a rule that says that's like a safety thing. So the racket doesn't go flying. So he made Ainge do that. So once he couldn't do that, he couldn't do the right hand, the left hand thing because the racket was tethered to one of the wrists at the time. And that's the way Auerbach beat him. And so, uh, credit to Red Auerbach. But the point is, 
that's just different. I mean, that's just mind-boggling to me that you could uh, use your right hand, uh, you know, in, in a way that you could, you know, use your left hand, well, right hand. Most to... people playing basketball are right-handed. Right. So when most people first... are right-handed. All right. So when they're first learning, when yeah. anyone's first learning, yeah, um, they're just... taught right-handed. But but if you say to somebody, "I'm left-handed." They'll teach it. It's not set the strength. It's teach it to play shoot breath landing. Yeah, shoot. but I can see where they, you, you can just be thinking, well, okay, uh, in this particular thing that I do, they yeah. do it this way, I do it that way. Right. Yeah. But it takes a certain uh, kind of coordination uh, to do that. I mean, it's just, uh, to me, it's an amazing coordination. Um, well, so the guys who are truly only left-handed... Yeah. They wouldn't be able to do it. And no. Say, well, I want to try it with my left hand. Now. Yeah, and they but, would, uh, but you would think they would all go to that. So, no, not if not if they just uh, by their physical nature are predisposed to do either way. Well, look, it gets it gets dicey because uh, the Seventy Sixers have a player called Ben Simmons, who you may have heard of, who's a big guard for Philly. Uh, he writes right-handed, he shoots left-handed, but he's a terrible shooter. <laughs> So, so they say many people believe he should be shooting right-handed. So, there's trouble if you give too much information about yourself. Okay. So, speaking of extinction, yeah. Uh, you know what's going to be extinct soon, according to the Wall Street Journal, box springs. Yeah, I never understood box springs honestly. If you were explaining it to me, no, box springs are just meant to support the mattress, right? And it's more comfortable that way. Right. Um, but now we have all these fabulous new types of mattress with right. memory foam right. Right. or hybrid mat- uh, mattresses that are a combination of, you know, coils and foam, etc. And uh, they are fine on some kind of platform. Well, so are futons. And futons have been around for a long time. Yeah, I mean, the futon, we uh, occasionally slept on a futon. Right. And it was fine. Yeah. But it's not the best. Uh, we, we were totally... But again, no, you, it, made, it made you question whether a box spring was necessary. So now we have all these beds with box springs, and now I you know. tell me we don't need yeah, a box the, spring. The nice thing is that our box springs are all extremely elderly. That's right. So we haven't invested so in box springs invested, recently. You know, every time we would go to buy a new mattress, they would say, well, you got to get the new, new box spring, too. Yeah. We won't guarantee. There would be no warranty uh, on the mattress. If you don't get the new, oh, is that if the way you they use did it? it in conjunction oh, with really? the old box that's, spring, that's, that's, and that's, we always say, when did when did you ever return your mattress? No, <laughs> so no. so uh, we have you know just the same old box springs, yeah. but um, now we can just we can toss them. So box springs were uh, invented, uh, patented, I should say, in about 1869. So they've had a good run. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, you know, there were just enough improvements. But I did actually uh, go on. I was pretty unaware of this. I knew there were the new kind of memory foam mattresses. Right. Absolutely. Um, and I knew there were some people who were using futons and things on, on just a um, wooden platform. But um, what I didn't realize is that you can go to like major uh, furniture seller or mattress seller. Mm-hmm. And or you know, uh, well, let's go to a major furniture uh, seller, and a huge number of the beds do not require a box spring. Okay. So it's just like a normal thing now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, bye bye box spring. Oh, well, makes sense. That's pretty me. funny. Yeah. Because it always did seem like a crazy right. extra 
thing to deal with. Well, one day you'll be explaining to your grandchildren what box springs were. Well, the, the way it started out, I should explain to you. I, did, I owe you a better explanation. Is that originally mattress were mattresses were made of like straw horse and horse hair right. and things, and they were heavy. And uh, especially for the mattress, if it's like a some kind of um, fabric covering, and then there's straw inside, and you sleep on it. What happens when you sleep? You sweat, you you know, right. you know, excrete stuff, and so on. So every day, the mattress needed to be flipped. Mm-hmm. Now, a mattress of straw and some of these other materials are extremely heavy, mm-hmm. even though they weren't, you know, queen size. Uh, and it would take, like... Two people to flip these, maybe mm-hmm. three people to flip these, and it was an enormous pain in the butt. So that's where, when they moved to box springs, mm-hmm. which could give better support mm-hmm. and a lighter thing called the mattress would sit on top that you could flip one oh, person could flip on okay. their own. So that, that was part of the innovation there. But um, anyway, that's all done. We'll have to uh, look into this all right. streamlined bed situation all right so here's a tax story uh and it has to do with the location tracking tax apps and there are apps which track and keep a record of what state you are in and the reason that's useful is traditionally it is for people who move in a trial trying to establish domicile in a different state and the way you might prove that to the irs is you show them results of this uh, location tracking tax app, and it will show that you're in the new state. It's become actually that much more significant now because a lot of people are working for home, and, and they claim, look, I know last year it looked like I was in X state, but I never go to that state anymore. I'm just working from home, so I shouldn't be taxed as if I'm in that state. Um, right, so, so the, the income tax. The, yeah, it's, it's, different, it's it, different, depending on where you're doing your work. If you're doing your work in a different place, you're, you're taxed differently. Um so this is a little bit of an issue for us because we moved to Pennsylvania at the beginning of the year. But we haven't been able to let go. Well, no, we of had, our, well, our we're working stash. on selling our house, but we're not living there. So we're so, not living there. But so we're, we're so, living in Pennsylvania. We're living in Pennsylvania, and the point and the is, tax structure in Pennsylvania is different from the, New Jersey. Right. And we're we can all, we have to pick one. It's clear we domiciled in Pennsylvania. And this Jersey is the right way to do it. Needs the money. Well, any state needs the money. So, so like. So, they are probably intent on tracking people well, there. I, I wouldn't. Uh, we'll see if we have an issue. I can't imagine we will, but maybe we will. But my my point is, so should we be using one of these tax apps? And a tax bird is the one that jumps to mind, since so the only reasonably priced one is thirty five dollars a year. You worry a little bit because you give up privacy. You have to sign a waiver because they know where you are. Fine, but here's why it doesn't work for us, and probably doesn't work for a lot of people, because of what you mentioned before. I go to New Jersey every day to buy the newspaper. And the way, the, the way these tax apps work is if you make any appearance in the state, they give you the whole day in the state. Yeah. And they'll do. You'll end up with more days than there are days in the year. So, so if you spend 24, 23 and a half hours in Pennsylvania and a half hour in New Jersey, it's one day for New Jersey and one day for Pennsylvania. That's not going to work for us. Mm-hmm. Anybody who lives near the border, near the Delaware River, not going to work. But uh, I can see for other people it might work. And it's interesting that this industry has sort of grown up just for the purpose of tax demonstration. So there you go. So you're telling me you did this whole story? And it turns out we can't use it. Well, I had to look it up. It doesn't work for us. It doesn't work for us. I mean, uh, disappointing. Don't a lot of people 
live across the river from... Yeah, well, I, we have other ways of proving residence. All I'm saying, this wouldn't really give you the information that you need. Uh, so a quick little museum update. And that is there's a... Um... I mean, let me just jump in and say this. You are right, though. This could be useful to a lot of people. This doesn't work for us because we live on the border. If you don't live on the border, it's something you should consider. But go ahead. All right. Nero. I want to hear about Nero. It's our last story. Go get uh, it. Yeah. New exhibition opening in May 27th at the British Museum. Yeah. Should you be across the pond there. Right. Uh, and Nero, the man behind the myth. Mm. So we think of Nero as just uh, the worst. The worst. The emperor who fiddled while Rome burned. And, mm. it, you know, used... He uh, did all... Accused of all kinds of terrible things, murdering his mother, um, uh, spent have been ridiculously extravagant, um, fiddling while Rome burned. Basically. Yeah, um, just you know, endless, endless, uh, you know, um, discussions of what just what a terrible emperor he was. Mm-hmm. It turns out that may not be the case. Okay. Okay. Um, which is kind of interesting and not at all, not terribly surprising. It turned out that, um, you know, a lot of the guys writing uh, about him, uh, like Tacitus and Suetonius, um, actually were, you know, had an axe to grind mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, might have been embellishing uh, some of uh, the stories about him. It's true that you, it's hard to even find a good uh, image of him. Because of the old uh, damnatio memori or um, uh, condemnation of memory, where once uh, you know a previous ruler dies, it's often uh, you know uh, the next ruler likes to just wipe out mm-hmm. any memory of them, and you know uh, things are destroyed. Uh, they have uh, so it's not even clear exactly what he looked like, and and, and later when people. Um, depicted him. They tended to depict him in very unflattering ways uh, because they were portraying uh, someone who was a scourge. Mm -hmm. Uh, So um, it it seems possible that uh, not only was he not such a terrible guy, but he was, uh, you know, uh, perhaps even uh, attractive. How do they figure this out? They are finding little things, um, you know, um, uh, um, objects uh, in uh, archaeological digs, etc., that uh, show uh, Nero uh, in a more positive light, like on a mirror, on a, on a uh, someone's personal, on a personal object that they would revere. And a mirror would definitely be associated with beauty. So if Nero's on it, um, you know, he must have been thought of as beautiful. All right, so... Um, this is an interesting idea. You know what it makes me think of? What? Social media. Okay. And just the idea of, uh, you know, how easily people's images are manipulated, um, depending on the situation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, if you just think about uh, even, uh, even, I don't know. Even our own images, uh, even, uh, you know, obituaries or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you can list uh, a few ca- characteristics and it gives one picture. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, you 
that's not the whole person. And in this case, uh, you know, it's just... Uh, well, it's, it's, it's more broadly, it's public relations. Who gets really. to tell your story. Yeah. It's, it's, um, but you can see that uh, the social media was hot and heavy over Nero. Now, I'm not saying he was definitely... Uh, yeah. Well, but, but you, you use the phrase, who gets to tell your story? That's the Hamilton line, right? Right. And, exactly. and that's, but that's true, right? Who, and who uh, tells your story? You is, know? Uh, the winners tell the story most often. And, uh, or the right people, uh, you know, being in favor with the right historians, I guess you're saying, or, or the successors. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, they... Um, the wrong crowd gets hold of your uh, story. So this, uh, this exhibition uh, shows a different light and points out, in, you know, some of the things... Um, that some would of the areas be, we have an indication that he uh, acted in a fairly responsible way. That would be a, a major reclamation project. If, if if you we get to the point that people have turned around the general consensus on Nero, that would be a real about face. Well, he, he seems to definitely have been extravagant. Well, extravagance, okay, nothing wrong. Out. I'm all into extravagance, but my my really? point, no, not really. But my point is that. Uh, He's got a pretty negative reputation. They can turn that around. They can turn anything around. But maybe maybe that's the truth. Who knows? All right. So uh, that winds up here uh, for the middle of May. And uh, until next week. This is Samson Granger. And Dan Abuha. Samson and Dan read the paper. Adios. See, see ya.